want to invite you to take your Bibles, if you have not done so already, and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 46 to 55. This is Mary's Magnificat. Um, if you're curious, Magnificat is uh, from Latin. Its word uh, appears in the first line of the Latin translation of Mary's prayer in the Vulgate, uh, and it means to magnify, where she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. That's where we get the term Magnificat. And so I've, I've entitled the sermon Magnify, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are Magnify, Mighty, and Mercy. Today we are returning to our series on the songs of the Bible. And we will be here for a few weeks while Pastor Nick is in Nigeria. And since it has been several weeks since we've been here, uh, I'd like to begin with a quick reminder of the importance of singing in the Christian life and, uh, and in the church and remind us of what the goal of this series has been as we've sort of been in and out of it for several months now. Uh, one um, author writes this about singing. He says, Christianity is a singing faith. It is one of the chief things followers of Jesus are renowned for. Both down through the ages and now all around the world. While the proportion of singing has varied from time to time and from place to place, most churches today devote about a third of their gathering time to congregational singing and invest a considerable amount of time, money, effort, and energy into the musical side of church life. He goes on and he offers three reasons for Christians to sing. He says singing helps us to praise. We praise God in our song. Singing helps us to focus our efforts and praise the Lord with our full attention and delight. We don't want to leave God with the dregs of our attention and the leftovers of our affections. And so singing helps us to focus those things and to pour them fully out onto the Lord. Second, singing helps us to pray. Right? Singing in one aspect is prayer. We're, we are asking God for things in the song. We are speaking to the Lord often in our songs, both corporately together and privately in our own hearts. Consider one of the songs that we just sang earlier, Come Thou Fount. That's a prayer. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let that goodness, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Singing helps us to formulate and offer prayers to God. Third, singing helps us to proclaim. And here, we are talking much more about the vertical, uh, or sorry, the horizontal aspects of our singing. The first two reasons, praising and praying, are directed primarily at the Lord. This third one is, directed at each other. We are, as Paul commands us uh, in Ephesians and Colossians, we are teaching and admonishing one another in our songs. Consider the last song that we sang. His mercy is more. 
In that song, we surely are singing to the Lord, but we are singing to one another. Praise the Lord, our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. We are telling that truth one to another as we sing. And so singing, for these reasons, and many others we we could name and consider, they, they play an integral role in the life of the Christian and the life of the church. And so we need to make sure that the songs that we sing together are good. Not just, uh, not just done well, that they're in uh, an appropriate key, a decent tempo, uh, with an easily learned melody, but that they're sound doctrinally. Because unfortunately, this is not the case for many songs being sung in churches today. And that goes for both old songs and new songs. Oldness doesn't make a song good or bad, and neither does newness. I'm not here to, to slam on any song in particular or any songwriter, but I do want to stress that, uh, as even Pastor Nick has mentioned in uh, several of the sermons lately and in Sunday school, that here at Redeemer, we, we work diligently to make sure that the music that we sing on the Lord's Day is done well, and that it serves the body, the church, and it glorifies the head, Christ. So in an effort to... Uh, together ask this question of ourselves, of the songs that we sing, are, the, are they good songs to sing? I wanted to just sort of stroll through the Scriptures together, um, considering the songs in the Bible. We've looked at Exodus, Deuteronomy, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Psalms, the Song of Songs, Lamentations, and we've noted Many things that these songs teach us. They focus on God's creative and redemptive power, His supremacy above all things, His love, His mercy, and tenderness toward those who fear Him, and His wrath, terror, and anger toward those who hate Him. And today, we've arrived at our first song in the New Testament that we will consider, Mary's Magnificat. Quickly, if you're not familiar with the context in which he sings it, in Luke's first chapter, um, he, is, he tells us that he's providing an account for the man Theophilus of all that had taken place concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' birth is certainly the most peculiar birth of any person that has ever been born. We learn in Luke 1, 26-38 that the Virgin Mary was to be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. And despite being unwed and never having known a man, she's told by the angel Gabriel that she, being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, would conceive and bear a son who is to be named Jesus, the Christ. She's also informed that her cousin Elizabeth shall bear a son in her old age, quite the opposite situation of Mary. And he, um, her son John, would stand as the forerunner, the prophetic forerunner to the Christ. And so Mary accepts this news with faith and goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And as soon as Mary speaks, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy at the sound of the voice of the mother of the incarnate God. And then Mary sings. And this is what she says. Luke 1, 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. 
For He who is mighty has done great things for Me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. In Sophocles' plays, Oedipus Rex and Antigone, um, Oedipus, once king of Thebes, the father of Antigone and um, Ismene, and of their brothers Polynesius and Eteocles, um, Oedipus unwittingly, if you don't know the story, kills his father, Laius, marries his own mother, Icosta, and when he learns what he has done, he, he blinds himself and he leaves Thebes. Eteocles and Polynesius uh, kind of contending for the throne, they, they quarrel. Polynesius is driven out but returns to assault and make an attack on Thebes. And in the battle, each brother kills the other. And Creon, Acosta's brother, becomes king and orders that Polynesius, a traitor to his country, be left to rot unburied on the battlefield so that his soul might wander aimlessly in the afterlife finding no resting place. Well, Antigone, moved by love for her brother and convinced of the injustice of the command, buries Polynesius secretly, but is soon discovered. And for that, she's ordered by now King Creon to be executed and is immured in a cave where she hangs herself. And her beloved Haman, the son of Creon, finds her and tries to slay Creon, but fails and takes his own life instead. It's a tale that depicts the folly of pride and its bitter end. King Creon is presented with multiple opportunities throughout the play where he may right his wrongs. He refuses to allow burial for Polynesius. He is determined to put Antigone to death for defying his law. He drives his son away from him as he seeks to spare his beloved's life. And in the end, Antigone is dead. Haman is dead. Crayon's wife, Eurydice, is dead. She commits suicide over the death of her son. And Crayon is left really all alone. A pitiable and broken man. And here are his final words from the play. He says, Lead me away. I have been rash and foolish. I have killed my son and my wife. I look for comfort. My comfort lies here dead. Whatever my hands have touched has come to nothing. Fate has brought all my pride to a thought of dust. I think those words are a fitting introduction to this particular passage of Scripture before us. Uh, There are really just two main points that I want to make from these verses this morning. And the message of those two points is this. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. 
Mary's heart has exploded into song at meeting, her meeting with Elizabeth, and she praises him for basically two things in these verses. She praises him especially in 48 through 50, and uh, 54 and 55 for the grace that has been shown to her in her humble estate. And she praises him in 51 through 53 for his strength and might to bring down those who are proud in their hearts. And so we'll look at each of these. And I want to consider God's opposition to the proud first in verses 51 to 53. And there are three things under this heading that we will consider. Just three questions. First, who are the proud? Second, why does God oppose them? And third, what is the substance of this opposition? Or what what does this opposition look like? So first, who are the proud, according to verses 51 to 53? God's enemies are described in three different ways here. They are the proud, the mighty, and the rich. The immediate caveat should be inserted here. Does does this mean that, that, is that simply the answer? Does God oppose anyone and everyone who is in a place of authority? Or does He oppose all who are Rich? Of course not. The Bible um, emphatically makes clear that God makes men who and what they are. God draws the lines for us. And nowhere does the Bible simply equate power and money with sin and wickedness. What the Bible does say is that People with power and money are often tempted to put their trust and their hope in the uncertainty of riches. And so they, they commit spiritual adultery and idolatry. And so this is the person under the microscope here. God is opposed to the person who by putting his hope in the uncertainty of riches has rejected God as his God, as his greatest good. The person who, through arrogance, has come to fail to understand that whatever power, whatever authority he may have has been given to him by God. This is what Pilate learns from the Lord Jesus. In John 19.11, Jesus tells him, after Pilate says, you know I have the power and authority to crucify you, he says, well, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So do we need to be kings or queens or governors, presidents, some political leader to be a proud and haughty person? Are we civilians safe from the possibility of falling under the judgment of God over the proud? No. We don't also need to be a billionaire. We don't have to be the king of the world. What makes us proud is that we we look for our identity in whatever position of power and authority we have. We look for identity in how much money we have or what we can buy with it. So this can be the president of a company with a few hundred or many thousand people, the manager at Starbucks, the mother of one or three or eight or twelve children, the husband of and head of a family, the oldest sibling in the lot, the pastor of a church. Any of us can fall prey to this. And so the question, 
Are you proud? Are you trusting in some position of might and power? Do you lord it over those under your charge? Do you use those under your care and charge primarily to benefit yourself and your own little miniature kingdom? Or do you lead and serve them in such a way that maximizes their usefulness and yours in God's kingdom? In short, if you have established yourself as king or queen in your own world, I have bad news for you. God stands opposed to your arrogance. Why? Why does God stand opposed to the proud? Second, it's quite simple. The proud are those who contend for the place of supremacy with God. The proud are those who look to God and say, I don't need you. The proud want to dethrone the sovereign Lord and sit upon, a, upon the seat of power themselves. This is what we saw in the Garden of Eden. Satan tells Eve, you can be like God. You don't need Him and His rules. Cast off His rules so that you may rule yourself. She fell for it with Adam. And it's been a problem ever since. And that's a problem. Because God will not share His glory with another. He will not, in, he will not tolerate insubordination. God is the rightful king of the world. And he has set himself against every sinful, arrogant claim to his throne. Well, what then is this opposition? What's this look like? We see this laid out well here in in these verses. Mary's words paint a clear picture for us. He demonstrates his strength against the proud by scattering their thoughts, bringing them down from their lofty places, and sending them away with nothing. In short, he completely obliterates the proud in every area in which the proud is tempted to depend on himself rather than on God. God confuses his thoughts, destroys his power, takes away his possessions. And what's left for the proud man? In the end, nothing. God is opposed to him and reduces him to nothing. It's a heavy word for us because, as we'll see in a moment, none of us escapes the sin of pride. And so that's point one. Who are the proud? Why does God oppose them? And what does it look like? It's a full-on assault against everyone who in his heart raises himself to the place of supremacy against God. And so then our second point, verses 48 through 50 and 40, uh, 54 and 55, God gives grace, we see, to the humble. Mary praises God because he has looked on her humble estate. He's looked on the humble estate of of his servant and he gives grace. And so, 
Let's ask the same three questions of the humble as we did the proud. Who are the humble? Why does God give them grace? And what is the substance of this grace? Who are the humble? Well, if you read the Bible for more than about two minutes, you would realize that the humble are hard to find. We all are inherently proud people. We are the people of verses 51 to 53 who deserve nothing but the anger, wrath, and fury of God Almighty. It takes the crushing weight of the law of God in opposition to us to bring us to a place of humility that we might serve God, that we might receive the grace of God. And when it comes, and we receive it, and we're laid low, we're struck by our own finitude, our own weakness, our own sinfulness before God, we're laid low and humbled before His might and majesty, and so we become then ready vessels for the grace of God. Here it is, in short, the the humble are those who, though formerly proud, have been brought to the end of themselves and their self-reliance to live upon God for all that He is and all that He is for them in Jesus Christ by the power of His Spirit. Verse 50, His mercy is for those who fear Him. Do you fear God? There is no fear of God in the eyes of the proud. Psalm 36, 1-4 Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The proud do not fear God. But the humble are those who do. From generation to generation, His mercy is for those who fear Him. So why? Why does God give grace to the humble? It's His nature to do so. God is gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is not a stingy miser who likes to withhold good things from His people. Psalm 84.11 tells us that no good thing does He withhold from Him who walks uprightly. Jesus provides us with a few different analogies to make this point well. In Luke 18, we read of the persistent widow who continually went with her request for justice before the wicked judge. Do you remember him? He neither feared God nor respected men. Yet what? It was because of her persistence that he eventually granted her request. What does this tell us about God? It doesn't tell us that he's a wicked judge whom we must berate for days and weeks and years on end and finally 
twist His arm to give us grace, it tells us that we can have every ounce of assurance that God is pleased to answer our prayers precisely because He's not like the wicked judge. He is a loving Father who delights to bless those who fear Him and call upon His name. And so as we go to Him pleading for mercy, pleading for help, our hearts are bound up with Him, we are conformed into His image, and He grows us and sanctifies us, and in time, in His time and in His wisdom, He answers our prayers. Driving this father-child analogy home, Jesus says in Luke 11, He asks what question? What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Do you see? This, this is the fundamental difference between the proud man and the humble man. The humble man asks and entreats God for help. The humble man looks upward to Christ. The proud man is content to look downward to himself. And he refuses to seek God's James, however, offers a helpful word here. In James 4, 1 to 6, he says that we don't, he says often we don't have what we want, and so we, we fight and we murder to get that thing. That's the proud man. But he says occasionally the proud man even can ask God for help, but he still doesn't get what he wants because he asks wrongly to spend it on his own passions. And so, even when the proud man sees a hint of his own inability, he's still opposed to God because while he may ask God for help, he still wants what he wants so that he can serve his own purpose, his own kingdom, rather than God's. James goes on and says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then he quotes Proverbs 3.34. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, submit yourselves to God. God gives grace to the humble because they are those who have submitted themselves in their lives to God and His kingdom. Is this not what Mary says in verse 48? He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. She has given herself over to the Lord, and He pours out grace and blessing upon her. So that's who the humble are. That is why God gives grace to them. What, a, what about this grace? What is this grace? What constitutes it? What does it look like? Mary says in verse, uh, verses 54 and 55, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. That begs the question, what did he speak to Abraham and to his offspring forever? Well, Genesis 12, 
tells us. 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from this country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This, of course, is but an extension of the promise that he makes indirectly, to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, God declares war against the serpent who would come and wreak havoc in His good creation. And in His declaration of war against Satan, there's good news for Adam and Eve and for us. That there would be a seed. There would be an offspring. A child whom the woman would bear. And he would be at war and would destroy the serpent. The serpent would inevitably bruise his heel, but in the end, the serpent's head would be crushed. There would be a child, the seed of this woman, and in this war, he would redeem a fallen humanity. Eve, the prideful woman, mother of all living, would bear a son, and he would be the grace of God to all who trust in him. And this is the child now in Mary's womb. The child whom she carries with her is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. The one of whom she sings now. He has remembered His servant Israel and given Him grace in this precious child. Like Abraham, she says from now on, all generations will call me blessed. The child in her womb would be born and would live a perfect and sinless life. He would perfectly fulfill all of God's law. He, Mary's maker, humbled himself and died a sinner's death in the place of proud sinners like Mary, like me, like you. This child, this son, is Jesus the Messiah. And He invites each and every one of us to trust in Him. Dear friends, if, if you do not know, do not walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not submitted yourself to His Lordship and trusted in Him alone for your salvation, I commend Him to you now. He offers Himself to you. And you can have Him. Grace, plenteous grace awaits for those who humble themselves and seek His face. Would you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and find Him to be all that you ever need? And for you believers, would you again, with me now, look to Jesus Christ who throws down kings sends the the proud rich man away empty, who was rich beyond all measure, but for our sake became poor. He is mighty and done great things for us. Holy is His name. I want to return to King Crayon.
in Sophocles' play for a moment before we conclude. When we left him, uh, he had lost everything. His wife, his son, uh, potential future daughter-in-law, they're all dead. And, uh, and in the end, somebody comes and kills him and takes his throne for him. But, um, so he never really learns his lesson. And the last words that he speaks in, in the play, Antigone, he says, Whatever my hands have touched have co- has come to nothing. Fate has brought all my pride to a thought of dust. It's a desperately sad moment, and there are only four lines in the play spoken after this, as he's being led inside to be consoled. And, and they summarize well his prideful plight. It says, There is no happiness where there is no wisdom. No wisdom but in submission to the gods. Big words are always punished, and proud men in old age learn to be wise. There's no happiness where there is no wisdom. And where is wisdom to be found? The fear of the Lord. Submission to God. I pray that we would learn far sooner than this pitiable king, that we would learn far sooner than he to be wise. He learned far too late that God opposes the proud. And that it is only with the humble of heart that God makes his home. So may we, like Mary, humbly receive all that God's Word is for us, all that God is in His Word for us, and may we rest in the person and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the child in her womb whom she would bear, who would then bear all of us to heaven.